So I know uh, a big thing that you're doing right now is you're trying to make LA a healthcare hub. And um, there's so many different hubs out there, like biotech. I think like Boston's known for biotechnology. Like Boston puts more money into biotechnology than all of the UK, which is kind of saying something. That's a lot of money. Um, yeah. LA also has like so many more things going for it. What, why, why healthcare? And then what advantages inherent in LA allow it to be something that could actually be competitive to any other space? Yeah, no, that's, that's a, it's a really, really good question. One that I get a lot and, you know, you hit, you know, Boston is definitely uh, one of the, you know, one of the usual suspects. There's a, there's a block in block area or the space called Kendall Square in, in Boston, mm-hmm. actually in Cambridge, that there's a big sign that said it's the most innovative square mile in uh, in America or in the world. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. So Boston, Bay Area and San Diego tend to be the the tr- traditional places that people think about when they think about a, a life sciences hub. And so um, I love both both angles to your question because I got some good, you know, good thoughts on that. And so, you know, first of all, you know, why, why healthcare innovation, why life science innovation in Los Angeles? And, you know, part of it is that it's really been here all along or for a very long time. Uh, you know, big companies like Amgen were founded here and, and headquartered here. Um, we've had more recent successes like like Kite Pharma and and companies like that, but uh, you know there's there's some research institutions here. One called the Lundquist Institute, which has been around for uh, fifty plus years. They you know they invented the the paramedic model there, so um, you know kind of this you know fundamental part of healthcare delivery. Uh, you know invented there. Uh, City of Hope Hospital, which is a uh, NCI designated cancer hospital in Los Angeles, they have been around for a hundred plus years. They've done you know amazing care over that time, but they also invented synthetic insulin once upon a time. So there is a lot of healthcare innovation that's happened here over the years. What hasn't happened is we have not had enough funding traditionally. We have not had enough uh, investors who are willing to write checks for entrepreneurs to start a company in LA or stay in LA. So typically what would happen is somebody great would graduate from one of our schools. And by the way, LA graduates more bio PhDs than any city in America. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of biotech, biology, uh, you know, biomedical engineering expertise coming out of the universities. But typically what would happen is they would have an idea and they would get an investment. And the first thing that would happen is their their company would suddenly be moved to the Bay Area or moved to Boston because that's where the investors were, or they would get a job and they would move there because that's where the jobs were. And so what we're doing is really helping to connect what's already here, strengthen what's already here in a way that leverages the strengths of, of Los Angeles and allows LA to kind of maximize its impact in, in healthcare um, and why do that versus sort of all the other industries here is a really interesting question. And in fact, what I love about LA is that we're, along with New York, probably you know, those two areas are are the most diverse economies in the country. So, you know, Boston is very much biotech and, you know, Bay Area has got some biotech and obviously tech tech and, uh, you know, companies like Apple and Google and Facebook and things like that. Uh, San Diego is very much biotech and a little bit of telecom. Los Angeles has got uh, aerospace, which has been here for a long time. Uh, you know, aerospace and kind of energy, oil industry. You know, those were the two early industries here, and then 
entertainment, of course, came along. And obviously entertainment is is huge in, in Los Angeles. But what I love about LA is that we're kind of the, the widget manufacturing capital of the world. Uh, LA actually has one of the most diverse manufacturing and large manufacturing economies in the US. And that's everything from aerospace and uh um, you know, once upon a time, automotive and apparel, but uh, support for the agriculture industry, which is all around um, support for, you know, there's food tech now, um, you know, there's still aerospace, which continues to grow. There's now fintech and, um, you know, companies like YouTube and, and Snap uh, were, were founded here in Los Angeles. And so we have this huge diversity of industries. And I think that's actually what makes life sciences innovation so cool here because we're not trying to be this straightforward biotech place like Boston, where one, we're combining biotech and med tech and digital health. We're even even combining, you know, if you think about LA, one of the other things that we have here is we're arguably one of the birthplaces of fitness. You've got things like uh, Muscle Beach and, and Gold's Gym and uh, you know, Joe Gold here, uh, you know, who was, you know, training Arnold Schwarzenegger or uh, you know. Uh, had the gym where Arnold Schwarzenegger was working at once upon a time. So that kind of fitness tradition is here in LA. Kind of the nutrition wellness tradition is is very strong here as well. And so that's kind of that that consumer side of uh, of health and wellness. And so you put all those things together, it allows us to have this really diverse life sciences, health innovation ecosystem, which is not trying to live on its own, but really trying to be a part of this bigger kind of diversity of, of Los Angeles, diversity of industries, diversity of technologies, and the part that really applies to healthcare, diversity of population. So basically, there are few places in the country or the world that has as diverse a population as Los Angeles. And so when you think about how do you develop healthcare technologies, whether it's drugs or devices or even you know digital products, how do you develop them so they'll be able to meet the needs of the entire world's population, you've got the ability within Los Angeles to actually do clinical trials that touch on basically every corner of the world because every corner of the world lives in LA. And so while we've got a lot going on in LA already, I think it it very much can be this future of healthcare innovation. And it's, it's kind of an exciting way to do it. Yeah, it definitely has. I, I hear a lot of the advantages of it. You also have that giant deep water port, so making shipping to other places really easy. Um, the the thing that bothers me about like the Boston, the Bay Area, and, and LA as a as a hub is that like the dollar doesn't really go as far. Like I'm from the Midwest, and so I think like for anything you could build out where you're at, um, you could probably like own an entire city over here. And so if you could <laughs> even even accounting for like moving people over and all these other things. And so, like, if you were to try to make a square, like Kendall Square in L.A., like, I imagine that's like, you know, billions of dollars of development. Um, and then you have like state tax of California, which is like 13 to 14 percent. So if you were to like, as an employee living in a place that's really cost, you know, you'd have to be getting paid a lot um, and you're getting tax taken out of it and stuff like that. So I'm always wondering, like, you know, why don't people build more in the Midwest over like the coast if the, yeah. if the cost is like not, not even like 30 percent less? But like in, in LA's case, I think it's like two or three times less, depending on what you're doing. Or, yeah, or and I'll say that, you know, it's, you know, first of all, we are seeing more of that happening. And that's not not just in life science, and I think it's in, in tech in general. And, you know, if you kind of go back to the 
call it, you know, Silicon Valley 1.0, which I guess was kind of like the 70s and 80s, but even, you know, so that was kind of the mini computer and then PC revolution. And then, you know, kind of, you know, 90s and 2000s, you got internet. And now we're in kind of this, this boom of web three and all these, you know, all these, you know, different technologies. Um, but, you know, back in that Silicon Valley 1.0, for sure, I think there was this idea that that was the only kind of place, you know, the only place where innovation like that happened. And it was really the Bay Area and, you know, Boston a bit with uh, the computer industry. And as as these kind of industries have grown over time and diversified, whether it's kind of the software world, the hardware world, life sciences, and investors are becoming a little bit more, call it, uh, you know, geography agnostic. And, you know, part of that was, you know, part of that was happening uh, even you know, several years ago. And, you know, once upon a time, venture capitalists tended to say that, you know, they they only wanted to invest in a company that they could drive to a board meeting. So, you know, that, you know, limits, you know, limits how far you can go, right? You're not getting on a plane for one of your investments. But over time, that started to evolve where VCs were saying, look, I, I want to find great companies wherever they are. I'm willing to get on a plane for the board meeting. You know, then we had uh, COVID and uh, suddenly we had, companies pitching investors that they had never met in person over Zoom and investors writing checks or really wiring money to founders they had never met in person because uh, that was the only way to get business done for, uh, you know, for a couple of years there. And so all of that's kind of opened up this idea that, you know, innovation happens everywhere, can happen anywhere. And what we really want to do is help to support innovators wherever they are. And so, you know, I can say that that sounds a little bit contradictory where I want to I want to make stuff happen in LA, um, which is true. Um, I will say that, you know, I look at LA as this emerging, emerging tier of life sciences innovation hubs. And there are a lot of those across the country. And there's places like Seattle, which has had a long, you know, a long history of life sciences, but not a huge industry. You've got, uh, Houston and Austin that are doing great things in, in life sciences. You got places like uh, like Denver, like Salt Lake. Um, you know, Nashville has a long history of uh, healthcare innovation that uh, you know kind of came from HCA. But now there's a number of organizations there. Uh, you know, I was I was speaking at uh, healthcare conferences, digital health conferences last year in in Pittsburgh. And in uh, Birmingham, and uh, you know, I'd spent time in Pittsburgh before. Knew that there was a lot of innovation there because of Carnegie Mellon and Pitt. Um, I had no idea that there was anything going on in uh, Birmingham at all, and I was like really pleasantly surprised by what I saw there. And so, you know, where I'm going with this is, I think that there's there's opportunities to help entrepreneurs start companies wherever they are, and now we've got the ability to help connect people into those companies who could be working virtually, right? So uh, you can either you can either start companies in lower cost of living places, but then potentially recruit talent to be working with that company who stay wherever they are, whether they want to be in the city or the country or the mountains or the beach or whatever. And then the flip side is uh, you can, uh, um, you know, you can start, you can have a company that's in a city, but you can end up recruiting people who are kind of, want to live someplace else. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And uh, and again, even though it sounds a little bit contradictory, I think the idea is LA wants to be super connected to all of these emerging parts of the country where things are going on. And 
we've got a a culture here that's really comfortable now with working virtually and collaborating virtually and i think we can we can start to build innovation in lots of places and you know let people live where they want to live uh, you know especially for digital health when it comes to biotech you end up needing to have more of a uh, you know, more people in in one place, uh, whether it's the R&D side or more, it's going to be kind of the the biomanufacturing side of things. And that's also where I think we're going to see biomanufacturing kind of happening at scale, but happening in different parts of the country. And especially if you look at places where there has been manufacturing, but there's less now. So, uh, you know, upstate New York is a great example Detroit area is a great example, um, but I think you could kind of look at look at the entire, you know, call it, uh, you know, Rust Belt, and there there's former manufacturing that was there that has now, um, you know, now gone away, but you know the buildings are still there, right? And there's people who are looking for jobs. There could be a really interesting opportunity to help support the economies there, help support. Uh, you know, healthcare there by manufacturing stuff more locally. And, you know, that solves a little bit of the question you're talking about, about how do we, you know, how do we make things happen in low cost of living places? And then, you know, you're always going to find, I mean, I, I came to California when I, you know, for college, I grew up in central Pennsylvania. So I definitely grew up in a, in a small town where the the cost of living was, uh, you know, a fraction of what it was in the Bay Area where I first, you know, came to California or in LA. But, you know, once once you move, if you move there and when you're, uh, you know, 18, 19, you sort of, you you get used to it, I guess, I guess eventually. And then you you can pretend like it's not really, uh, uh, you know, a, a discrepancy and, you know, until I go back for a high school reunion and I realize that everything is a fraction of the cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um that's, what, that's one of the things I was really curious about because you, you, I think before LA, you came from New York doing something there. And so it's like, you know, you, you pick one high cost of living to another high cost of living and you're trying to do some really big, important things. So it's like, if we can maximize the dollar to have the biggest impact, like uh, I think the thing that makes up for it is that the network effects that you're talking about in LA. Additionally, there's the there's the trend, the underlying benefit of the trend that you just talked about where people moving out and being remote is that it's really emptying up a lot of these inner cities a lot of the cities where yeah. people are no longer there, it's it is bringing down the the housing prices. I don't know to the extent like literally like building a Kendall Square 2.0 is on your list of like getting a bunch of billionaires together to like buy up a spot, you know, um, have like kind of like Bell Labs R and D, yeah, you know, tech crunch type thing, you know, like um, it's on, I don't know, is that like something on your on your mind? Like it's, you know what like I mean? It's, it it is. I mean, I I would love uh, I would love to be able to find a way to make something you know something like that happen that uh, you know really. And, and there are there are some successful entrepreneurs and uh, you know potential funders in LA who you know look at ideas like that and you know how do you kind of have that early stage research and the development and kind of you know early scale up and then opportunities for bigger companies to come in and you know and how do you couple that with with housing and how do you couple it with you know other fun things to do which is also which is also more a part of how any of these things develops. I think, you know, once upon a time it was, you know, try to build and, you know, you know, Bell Labs is the perfect example because I think, you know, Bell Labs, uh, I've never been there, but, you know, I, my sense was it was in this kind of, you know, not rural, but it was, uh, you, know, remote, in, you yeah. know, kind of in its own spot in New Jersey and, yeah. uh, you know, people would drive there to work 
Mm-hmm. And they would be in the office from nine to five or, you know, maybe longer place like that. And then you'd like drive someplace else to live. And it, that was like that that probably popped up around the same time that people were starting to get used to the idea of commuting a long distance. Right. And sort of, you know, where you lived and where you worked was really different. And um, whether it's big cities or smaller cities, uh, you know, even places like L.A., we're starting to see more where people kind of want to live and work and play all all in the same place and so uh that doesn't need to be a massive development it just needs to be enough happening there that it gives them a reason to have a job and maybe have their next job close to there whatever that case you know when that time comes but also you know can you afford to live around there um you know are there other cool things to do is there access to public transportation which even in la uh, you know believe it or not we're I know LA is not known as a public transportation city by any means, but uh, we're we're starting to add more public transportation to Los Angeles, and and part of that is the uh, the Olympics are coming in in 2028, and that's one of the commitments that LA has made to uh, you know to the International Olympic Committee and to the world is that hey we're going to be an accessible city. So they're they're kind of building in advance of that, but what's happening is that I'm. I am meeting, uh, you know, I'm meeting kind of early career scientists and entrepreneurs who like do live in Los Angeles without owning a car or maybe, you know, they're a couple, but they have one car rather than two cars and they spend a lot of time, you know, they'll they'll live near a metro station and uh, hopefully work near a metro station. But you could do a bit of metro, a bit of Uber, a bit of, uh, you know, Bird or Lime or whatever the scooter company is still, uh, you know, still in business is called these days. And you can actually get around and, um, you know, live in a place like LA without a car. And so, again, the closer, you know, the closer you are to living and working together, the easier that is. And that's, you know, we could make that happen in LA. It's also something that if you talk about some of these other rebuilding cities like Pittsburgh or, or Birmingham or Detroit or things like that, I think there's uh, there's even more of an opportunity there because you've got kind of a smaller city core and then you have just, you know, one rung out is some great places to live and great places to work. And you've got really interesting restaurants and bars and stores kind of popping up in between all of it. And uh, I don't know how I got off on this tangent, but uh, um, I, I think I think I have a um, I was a I was a wannabe architect and urban planner once upon a time. So I, I actually do love thinking about some of these things and sort of how do you how do you find the right balance of uh, live, work, and play in a way that kind of makes you know makes everyone happy. Yeah, I, I like I love public public transport. It pisses me off that in the seventies, eighties, I think it's like sixties, seventies, and eighties, like the the automobile industry just like went in and like gutted most of them. Like they we used to have like really cutting edge public transport and they just came in and like lobbied to destroy the things or like really undermine them and it makes yeah. me sad because we could have you know like this cool high built rail, rail and all these other things and it's like even in the rail and how it was built just if we're looking at that they would they would deliberately put curves into the rail which was inefficient be- because if they had a curve they they get an extra thousand acres because it was like per you know you know whatever right right amount. and it's like you're already getting a lot can you just make it efficient you little shits <laughs> like right like no, you're already it's... getting it <laughs> There's like uh, America and greed is kind of obnoxious. Like, like I mean, like they probably only got like you know actually like five percent, but like they were really excited for that five percent. Right. But then you have right. like now it's you know hundreds of billions to like fix stuff like that. 
And, you know, you need stuff like the Tokyo, I mean, I mean, the Olympics to come in to like make people want to accelerate that. I love to see yeah, just no, like it's, a nice it's true. high speed again, rail. Even a, place, a place like LA, I mean, they're, they're, they are, yeah, they are finally building the Metro and uh, um, there's even a, there's a Metro station um, adjacent to UCLA and, and one, one more past it at the, 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 the VA, uh, which is, you know, close to UCLA, but you know, that line um, it'll be great when it's when it's done. And that line is basically going, uh, you know, going under Beverly Hills. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, that was the the stumbling block. So, you know, whatever it was, not even 20, probably like, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, when they were originally talking about doing something like that, you know, Beverly Hills, which is a city, um, you know, LA County is huge, uh, 10 million people, and but LA County is uh, 88 cities. The biggest one being the city of Los Angeles, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of independent cities within LA County, like Beverly Hills, like Santa Monica, uh, like like Culver City, and you know Beverly Hills back then said we don't want the the subway going through here, and so that was kind of blocked for a long time. And yeah, you think about like what it would have cost to build that when they were originally talking about it. Um, you know, to build the entire thing would be what it takes to, you know, now build a mile of it or something like yeah, that. Right. So it's sucks. like the cost is huge, but they're finally, you know, they're finally doing it, which is nice. Yeah. Um, another thing that is uh, concerning, I, I, I lived in Austin, Texas for a while and they started having a homeless problem and the mayor or some people there went to LA and they're like, Hey, what do we need to do to make it not end up like LA? And the <laughs> the mayor of LA was basically like, you need to you need to act now. We're at a point in LA is if I remember this right, where they said there's really nothing you can do to affect like the homelessness and the the inequality in that way. How do how do you um how do you how do you think about that type of thing? Like how could how can LA fix? It's like I think on some streets it goes from like the most richest people in the world to people living in tents and yeah you know, living in mental illness and stuff like that. Yeah, no, and it's it is it is a, a huge huge challenge in in LA, and I've spent a lot of time in San Francisco. It's a huge challenge there, um, and you know even uh, I mean I live in kind of a quasi suburb. I live in the San Fernando Valley, uh, you know, quasi suburban part of Los Angeles, and it's it's a few miles from my house to uh, to the freeway that I take when I'm you know heading into uh, the office and. On that route, you know, in that few miles, there's probably two or three spots on that road where there's, you know, collections of, of tents and, you know, those weren't there, weren't there in huge numbers pre-pandemic, but kind of, uh, you know, definitely grew during pandemic. And there's spots of L.A. where there's a lot of that. And uh, um, city of L.A., county of L.A., I think both both of those both of those entities literally the top three priorities are homelessness, homelessness, and homelessness, because it is, it is such a, you know, pervasive, pervasive challenge. And, um, you know, we're, it is, it is a challenge. It is a challenge to fix it. And I'll say that, uh, you know, pandemic definitely made it worse. Um, the, the economic lead into pandemic made it worse. And, you know, California, I, I, you know, I love living in California, um, LA is maybe a little bit more balanced than the Bay Area, but I think both of these areas are in some ways victims of their success. You know, Bay Area in particular, where there are so many people who've made so much money and it's created this kind of bubble of the economy for a small number of people. And then there's, you know, a number of people who just, you know, are completely 
disconnected from that and uh, and not a lot in between. Uh, and that's that's very much the Bay Area story. Again, a little bit better off in LA. Um, you know, the the real the real challenge and kind of the way that at least I think that um, my industry and my organization can fight it a little bit is you know how do we how do we continue to create more jobs and uh, you know LA. LA already has uh, a tradition of, I'll call them, um, you know, transient jobs or short-term jobs, right? Because, you know, because of the entertainment industry, we have a lot of people who come to Los Angeles to make it big in Hollywood. And then they spend the next, uh, you know, 20 years working as a barista or a, or a waiter or, um, you know, in a store waiting for that big break, right? And, you know, nothing wrong with any of those jobs. Like we, you know, we 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 need people doing all those things, but you've got people who are sort of in one job while they're waiting for the next job. And and that happens even when you're, when you're, you've got a regular career in entertainment, you work on a film and then you're not working on a film for a while. And so you're back doing, uh, you know, doing kind of the the more temporary thing. Um, a lot of those jobs, both the both the entertainment jobs and the service jobs, uh, the hospitality sorts of jobs went away during pandemic. And so, you know, L.A. Um, L.A. lost, uh, you know, I think close to a million jobs in the, the first few weeks of the pandemic. So population of 10 million and we lost about a million jobs and, you know, a, a lot of those have come back. Um, and there's, uh, I think we're only about 70,000 uh, below where we were then. So there's been a lot of progress there, but that starts to impact it more where you've got, uh, there's just aren't enough jobs for, uh, you know, aren't enough jobs for people. And so growing industries like life sciences, growing industries like, clean tech, uh, like, uh, you know, new media here, how do we help to create jobs, not just for graduating PhDs or, you know, graduating, uh, you know, bachelor's degrees, but how can we create jobs for people with associate's degrees, people with certificates, people with, you know, without college education at all, that we can start to create new opportunities for them to um, to support these growing industries, and I think that's that's one piece of this is just job creation, which will eventually lead to uh, to you know better economic stability. And then you know you hinted at another piece of this. Why do I like working in life sciences? You know, one of the big areas of innovation for now for several years, and and better you know, more public talk is about. The whole question of mental health and uh, um, and pandemic was kind of a great a great equalizer for the population because I think that regardless of whether you were you know super happy or moderately happy or completely unhappy pre pandemic fast forward a year you know year and a half into pandemic we were all less happy less happy then when <laughs> then we were going into it right and so you know mental health. It's impacted everyone. Life science innovation can definitely make a big difference in, in mental health. And so I think if we can couple this with, we're helping to create jobs and those jobs are in turn helping to solve mental health challenges. You combine those things and you start to create a little bit more of a, you know, a little bit more of a flywheel of progress that can, that can tackle some of this. Um, you know, there are other parts though, like, you know, like housing and, you know, you, you know, you mentioned kind of the, the cost of living in different places. I mean, it's, 
it can be really challenging to uh, you know to get back on your feet when even people who have jobs, you know, people who are married and you know both people have jobs struggle to uh, you know find places to live in a place like LA or a place like San Francisco, and so. Again, it's it's not it's not easy, and uh, you know I def I definitely don't have any secret weapon for this, but I am kind of cautiously optimistic that um, that the general population kind of came together around so many things during pandemic that if we can kind of keep some of that energy going and say, okay, like we we got past this and we solved these sorts of problems, how can we now take that same energy and put it against? homelessness, you know, put it against, uh, you know, substance use disorders, put it against, you know, any of these sometimes interrelated challenges that make it really tough to, you know, sometimes get by. Yeah. What are your thoughts on um, just like diving into mental health? What are your thoughts on like uh, psychedelics? I, I've been, I recently had Brom Rector from saying the last name, right? I'm po- apologize yeah, Brom yeah. if I'm saying it wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we had a long discussion about just the, the power of these things and, and affecting mental health. And I don't think there's many, uh, really good interventions like what psychedelics looks like is going to be doing for people with mental illness, PTSD, et cetera. Do yeah. you have any of that under your umbrella that you're interested in? in uh, yeah. And, it's like, and I, I know, I know Brahm a bit. In fact, I, I think he and I are uh, uh, supposed to be talking over the next week or two. And um, I'm, I'm excited to catch up with him. Um, I was trying to get him. I, I went a week or two ago, I went to a um, investor pitch event for a company that is uh um, that is using uh, 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 using psychedelics along with um, along with therapy yeah. to treat uh, alcohol use disorder and mm-hmm. uh, really really you know interesting technology interesting kind of combination because again it's it's you know it's a new kind of drug not even a new kind of drug it's uh, psychedelics were actually used for treatments like that fifty years ago and then uh, and there were even some major pharmaceutical companies yeah. that were manufacturing these and then and you know brown probably shared more and knows more about this but you know they were they were practically yeah, on the market and then they ended up uh you know just you know just disappearing um yeah so there's, there's a lot of history here not to mention some of the um you know some of the other psychedelic drugs which are you know natu- you know naturally occurring kind of uh um you know herbal medicinals things like that i mean these are things that have been used and known for hundreds or thousands of years but are just kind of you know under the under the fringe of uh of mainstream medicine and we really are starting to see some of those things kind of open up and i think you know part of it is just the um you know part of it is more of a focus on individual health care and so you know combination of user data and wearable data and genomic data, the Affordable Care Act and kind of bringing, you know, bringing healthcare a little bit more into consumers' hands. Um, all of, you know, all of that coupled with some relaxation of uh, of regulations, it's suddenly starting to create opportunities where there's some really cool startups working on psychedelic treatments. Um, what's even more interesting is there are some pretty big companies working on uh, yeah. uh, psychedelic treatments. And I think uh, I was, I was reading an article about, um, so, you know, a couple, couple months ago, beginning of, you know, beginning of January uh, is the, the big annual healthcare investor conference uh, that JP Morgan puts on in San Francisco. And um, 
was reading an article about kind of the conversations that were going on there in this in this industry or in the, you know in that piece of the industry and there's probably not a you know probably not a major pharmaceutical company that doesn't have a uh you know psychedelic strategy within their business you know there's there you know there's psychedelic strategies there's longevity strategies there's uh, you know all of these different sorts of you know, probably could just be one or two people, or it could be a team of people who are looking at these and identifying what are the opportunities. And, um, you know, especially now kind of coming out of coming out of the opioid crisis and sort of an entire industry looking at that and saying, that was a mistake. We probably shouldn't do things that way. How can we achieve the same sorts of results or better results with patients with you know with different approaches and so psychedelics definitely come into that uh the other thing that kind of in some ways there's even some alignment is the you know using ar and vr uh technologies as uh sort of digital therapeutics and so you see ar and vr being used for um for mental health disorders uh for ptsd um you know for pain management all the same sorts of things where opioids might have been used, all the same sorts of things where psychedelics could be used. And I think we're just, we're really at this starting point of some pretty, pretty cool innovation that I think is going to be opening up these technologies to, uh, you know, to many more people. And so I'm, you know, I'm bullish. I know, I know Brahm is bullish and I, I think he's, you know, he's, uh, he might be the only kind of fully psychedelic venture fund out there. And I'm, I'm thrilled yeah. that they're, that they're here in LA because it's just, it's great to have a firm like that doing some cool work and, you know, be able to know that they're here locally. Yeah. And I feel like there's going to be a state that's going to legalize it or make it easier for people to uh, build products to help people. It's probably gonna be California, you know, like, you know, all the people on the, on the West coast are pretty, uh, pretty open to that. Type. Yeah. At least historically, that's where like the sunflower people or whatever the, yeah. the term was for the 60s. Yeah. I, I think it's true. I mean, it's, I, and this, uh, at this investor pitch, there was some, you know, discussion around that. And I think it's, I, I agree with you. I think one of the, one of the more challenging parts is when it comes to sort of, uh, call it, you know, like prescription drugs and things like that, um, you're really trying to find like a, a national policy that can make it, uh, they can make it easy. And, you know, that part's a challenge. I mean, I think even, you know, even marijuana, it's, uh, you know, I mean, we've got, I think it's a rough, roughly half the States where, uh, you know, where marijuana, marijuana is legal, which is, which is great, except that means that, you know, there's roughly half the States where it's not, and that makes it harder to have kind of a, a unified strategy for that. And so, um, you know, I think there's some there's some uphill battle with some of this, but you know, we are seeing again there are companies who are working on this from a prescription standpoint. There's uh, you know there's walk-in uh, uh, ketamine clinics in uh, uh, you know in California and some other places, and so you know you are starting to see some of these different kinds of substances being available to people. You know, along with uh, um, you know, again, it could be along with AR and VR, could be along with meditation, could be along with, uh, um, you know, other sorts of, I'll call them more, uh, you know, Eastern medicine or alternative medicine, things like that. All of these are kind of coming together in ways that weren't the case even, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago, and like certainly weren't the case, you know, 50 years ago. 
Yeah, um, just a, a quick tangent off because I, I want to uh, definitely talk about those Sackler fucks. I, I hate I hate the Sackler family. Uh, what they did with the opioid <laughs> epidemic, they they probably I, th I have like this theory. I have this idea. I hypothesis that like if you you need to disincentivize it more, like the the fines and stuff that people get for doing stuff like that, it's not uh, equivalent to what they they do wrong. Like even if you were to give them like a like multi billion dollar fine, they've made tens of billions of dollars. So like like the like an evil accountant person's just gonna be like, I'm gonna keep doing that. Yeah. I think, and then I'll ask you a question, but like, I think if it was like, it's like one X times profit. So like for every fine, it goes up by one X. So if you do something like multiple times, that's three times profit and you're out of a business. So get, get fucked. But yeah, um, I used to, I, I, I used to work in the, uh, in the kind of nutritional supplement space, sports nutrition. And, um, I was working with a company that was a subsidiary 24 hour fitness, but we were sort of, you know, independently, managed and you know we were i i knew nothing about the industry going into it and we were very much the um you know we were trying to be the good guys in in an industry that is very unregulated and kind of uh you know very you know cowboy sort of mentality sometimes and i would look at you know so we were you know we were very focused on products do what you know they do what they say they do the ingredients are what they say they are you know everything you know everything is true from development to formulation to manufacturing to packaging and then you would look at companies who um would kind of come out with some outlandish you know outlandish claim for a product and they would just you know and of course people love outlandish claims and so people would buy this as fast as they could sell it and that would go on until at some point um someone looked at this and said wait you know the um, you know, the, the label doesn't match what you're saying, or we did a assay of this product and, you know, what you're saying is in the product is not really what's there. And what would tend to happen is, uh, you know, like you said, they would, um, have to pull that product off the market. They would pay a fine. Um, and then typically those entrepreneurs would, uh, take a year off, go, uh, you know, live on a beach or an Island or something like that, you know, enjoy, you know, enjoy the remaining profits from that. And then they would come back and they would start up a new company and tell the same lies and sell it as fast as possible until they got shut down. And it was like this cycle. And, you know, this was this was a couple of years after I'd gotten out of uh, business school. And I remember, you know, commenting to my colleagues, it was like you, you know, one thing they don't teach you in business school is how do you compete with unfair competition, right? I mean, you, you know, you learn when you get an MBA, it's like, well, how do you, how do you build an awesome business? And of course there's going to be competition and you want to be better than your competition, right? You want to be more innovative than your competition. Um, but nobody teaches you, how do you compete with businesses that are, um, you know, that are not, um, you know, not above lying, you know, that are not above trying to, you know, deceive their customer and the industry and the regulators. And so, it's it's a, it's a challenge and so yeah I, I think that there there do need to be more you know more penalties for those kinds of things and um you know we we've, we've got to be we have to police the industry such that we end up having the you know there there's you're incentivized for doing the right thing and i've got to believe in healthcare like we should be incentivized for doing the right things because healthcare really is all about helping people and i think you can you can help people and still make a lot of money. So if your two choices are to help people and make money or hurt people and make money, why wouldn't you just 
go on the side of help people and make money because there's plenty of ways to do that. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think one thing that I find really reprehensible is just looking at the secular case, and I I have extensively researched it because I, I when you know sometimes there are people in the news and people say I hate these things. I will go and learn it before I say I hate it, and I will tell everyone here I hate these people. And if you want to, anyone who wants to fight me on this, you can come fight me. Um, one thing that really pissed me off is they had a person in the FDA, and people do this all the time. They have someone in the FDA basically like work with them to write the label in such a way where they could kind of skirt around it, which caused the whole thing to domino down. And this is something that really bothers me. And I'm curious, like just your thoughts on like how we could do better on this. But there are people who will go from regulating an industry, regulating a company, and then go and work at that company and then help them d- destroy yeah. the regulations that they did. And it's like, well, one, how, how do you know they weren't like bending the rules the entire time, knowing that there's going to be that giant board seat waiting at the end? And then two, how do, you, how do you know they didn't like set it up so they could come in with a specific way of looking at it and take advantage of everything they just did? I think there should be like a 10, 20 year, like you're not allowed to go in the industry period. I love that. I, I don't know how to do it right here, but I, that sounds really wrong. And just we have tens of thousands of lives that are lost and not even just their lives, but generations down the line are going to be affected from this company who just wanted to make more money. And you know, at the heart of it, it was a, you know, a couple of regulators who were getting greased by that company that allowed everything to come after that. So it pisses me off. I'm just because <laughs> uh, it happens yeah, every day. I mean, it doesn't again, have to be. Just, at, uh, yeah, it, it, is, it is. It is a challenge. And uh, I mean, you, you see this kind of like the yeah, this sort of the cycle of. Uh, you know, legislators or regulators going to lobbyists, going to media. Um, and, you know, kind of, you know, being able to just sort of jump into the next thing where you can make more money. And like you said, you can be you can go from one side of the table to the other pretty quickly. And, um, you know, clearly, you know, clearly you've still got you still got in your head everything that you knew from that last role. And now you're kind of on the other side. And, you know, it's I'm sure people are asked to, you know, people are asked to sign confidentiality agreements and asked to, you know, not use this knowledge, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard to avoid that. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, it is, it is a challenge. I, I don't have an answer to that one, but um, I, I guess I, I guess I'm still a little bit of an idealist where I say, hmm. I'm going to keep up, keep on trying to be that guy who's, you know, doing, doing good business and hoping that eventually good business will prevail over bad business. Yeah. I, I, it's kind of reminds me of Animal Farm. There's that, there's that one horse who was doing all the work, trying to take care of everybody else, <laughs> yeah. and they th- then they rode him into the ground and killed him. Right. So, it's like, right. so I, I love the optimism, but I also don't want like people to just like be doing these bad things that grinds you down on what you're trying to do. Right. Um, right. You need a level playing um, field. Or else yeah. Exactly. Fair. I think that's that could be one reason why I'm not working in the nutritional supplements uh, industry <laughs> yeah. anymore. But <laughs> yeah, if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with. Uh, Richard Branson, but when he started making a, his 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 airline, they started the air, like the big airlines of the area started doing these things he calls the dirty tricks, where they were trying to do everything involving even even like pretending to be his airline and canceling you mm-hmm. know, flights Interesting. and stuff. And so like one of the one of the things he did was like he was just a great marketer, and I think that's what saved him and the fact that he was willing to fight. But uh, most people can't do that. Like they'll they cannot last. It's it's like um. It's like like there are people in the chocolate industry, and there's like a person who's coming out who's gonna be on the show. I already interviewed them; they're just kind of scheduling it. Um, who um, who's making uh, sell agriculture chocolate so that um, 
it, it's basically competitive with the good stuff out there. The problem with chocolate is if you're trying to do the right things ethically in terms of like how it's made, the cost of doing that is not competitive with people who are using basically slave labor to achieve the same results. And so it's like when you allow slave labor to set the standard for the procurement of something, you are um, making it so that people who do the right things are disincentivized to do so and will go out of business for doing it. So, you know, I, I look forward to the day where like all slavery is wiped out and none of it touches anything that comes to America, period. And uh, stuff like this, you know, a couple hundred years ago, we used to have a system where every time a president came in, there was like 15,000 jobs and it was basically like cronyism, like who could get them. And now it's a little bit more bureaucratic, a little bit better. And I, I, I like to think that, like, like you're saying, I think the more people are aware of these things, the more like sacrilege come through and like cause these problems. We can come through and plug those holes and stuff like that. Then the, the issue is then like, you know, some people start taking away the the, legis the legislation, like the stuff in uh, Ohio right now. I don't know if anyone's following this, but Ohio city's burning down and uh, from a, like a, a train derailment. Right. And, yeah, I saw um, that. Yeah. And the EPA is literally saying that there was a, like breaks that could have been on the train. That was a, a regulation that was there like four or five years ago and it got taken off. And if that breaks weren't were there, it probably would have stopped this whole thing from happening. And it's like the regulation there to do good things, then it's taken off because people are like, oh, why do we have this regulation? And then, you know, an entire yeah. town, everyone southwest to the Mississippi is probably going to have like three legs when they, you know, have kids and stuff like that. But um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad state of affairs and that type of stuff. So I, I like talking to people like you <laughs> who does have the hope. And even though there are people out there doing these, you know, unethical, evil things, you know, your success means that you can lobby people. And at the, at the same time, the integrity wins over time as long as you're not grind, ground down to nothing. You know, like if your nutrition company, for instance, even though these people could come and pump and all these other things, at a certain point, people know like, oh, these people are pieces of, sh you know, not good people. And this is your organization is going the thing, especially with good marketing, like making that point. Eventually it differentiates, but there's still people who who don't have the time with their busy lives with everything they're trying to do. They just want to get healthy. And so it, it kind of doesn't work out. I'm curious your thoughts. Um, one thing that kind of bothers me about the healthcare industry is that um, uh, healthcare workers really don't really get the support that they need. Like, so we can innovate, we can build more products, we can take care of people, mental health, et cetera. But suicide rates for doctors, for instance, is ridiculous. It, it used to be worse, right? Like, but at the same time, like it's still pretty bad. I think in the sixties and seventies, they used to work like four or five days straight. Now yeah. they could be on call for 20, like for, you know, several days. And if someone's, you know, surgery on your brain, you know, you, you probably, don't want them to not have slept. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. like every, we have all the exactly. studies and stuff. So I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on building a structure that takes care of the the teams that run the the healthcare system as well. I don't know if the unions are the the key, though. It does seem that the downfall of unions has been the uptick and people not being taken care of very well. Yeah, and again, it's I mean, I think again, I I, I hate to keep on going back to you know pandemic as this this great you know lens or mirror, but uh, you know we we definitely saw that you know during pandemic where uh, uh, I think there was more awareness of sort of what what healthcare workers go through and sort of the stresses around that and uh, um, and you know it's and it's not it's not just sort of the overwork of of physicians or overwork of other team members um you know you also kind of back to our earlier point of our conversation um you know not not so much the, the physicians but you know there are other people who work in hospitals uh you know nurses and techs and things like that and um you know they can't always afford to live 
really close to the hospitals, you know, certainly in, uh, you know, in a, a city like Los Angeles. And so you end up with, uh, you know, healthcare professional professionals, kind of the, the support team who have to drive really long distances just to be able to uh, get to work. And so it's kind of adding that, you know, that stress to that, you know, it's kind of similar with, you know, teachers. Uh, um, so, you know, that's a challenging part. Um, we're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing hospitals in certain parts of the country closing because their financial model is falling apart or the demand's not there. They can't, you know, they can't retrofit the the hospitals to keep up with current standards. And so, you know, then you end up with people who um, both patients and providers who have to be driving longer distances to be tapping into healthcare and things like that. And so, um, I think, you know, part of it is part of it is just awareness, which I do feel like pandemic helped to create that that awareness. Um, and I've uh, I, I was there was a, a physician here in, in Los Angeles who I saw uh, get an award last last fall. Um, and she has created an entire network of it's sort of like a a, a buddy, you know, a buddy network of uh, other physicians to help, you know, to help support physicians kind of like a hotline when they're, you know, when they're feeling stressed out. And, you know, the whole point is to reduce physician suicides, you know, reduce physician, uh, you know, substance abuse, you know, things like that, that, uh, that happen. And so, you know, part of it is just how do we create awareness and then how do we help find the right, uh, you know, the right people who can be engaging with these these providers uh and then you know and then hopefully um i think this is one of these places where kind of technology and you know ai and things like that are are going to be beneficial and uh, i know there's a lot of concerns that you know even among you know among the medical profession that sort of you know ai is eventually going to put some of these people out of business and i i think that there you know there was a there's a little bit of truth to some of that but i think more of it is uh um, probably what we've seen with with almost every technology innovation, you know, over the history of the world is that there's there's people who people who think the technology is going to um, displace jobs. And then you fast forward five, 10, you know, 50 years and it, it, it just created new jobs. Right. I mean, there's there's always jobs to, you know, to fix things and, you know, you know work on things that didn't exist before you created the technology. But you know, back to the healthcare thing, if we can use AI, other decision-making tools to help support physicians kind of at that triage level, at the frontline level, um, it, it takes some of the stress off the physicians, kind of that, yeah. that constant, you know, constant pressure, and then actually frees up the physicians to do more of what they wanted to be doing, probably why they went to med school in the first place or why they went to nursing school or whatever, which is, okay, you're leveraging the technology and now we can actually solve the problems that really need to be solved. We can work on this in a, in a more methodical way. And so I'm, I'm oh, again, cautiously optimistic that tech can help, help with some of that as well. But um, it, it's, it is a challenge. And uh, I think, you know, it's to some extent you could, you could argue that, almost you know almost every career in america for sure is is more stressful today than it was a generation ago um you know whether it's the pressure like at the job or it's the pressure because your boss is emailing you or texting you or you know you've got the ability to work 
when you're on vacation. So you do work on vacation, right? All these things have kind of crept up over the past past 20 years. And so everyone's job is more stressful. It's just that, you know, if, if my job is more stressful, the only, uh, you know, the only consequence is, you know, maybe I have a bad day or something like that, right? I, uh, I don't send an email out on time. It's a little bit more, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a, a life or death job the way a physician does or the way a um, airline pilot does or something like that. And, uh, you know, that's where we have to really create that awareness, do more monitoring and, uh, and, and make it kind of, uh, it's, it's the, making it okay to say, you can't do this or, you know, make it okay to say, I, I've hit my limit for today. I've got to, I've got to clock out or I can't do this thing or whatever. And I feel like that's, that's a part of American culture that it's so ingrained where, uh, um, you know, you could always do more and, you know, you can always, you know, don't call in sick, just go to work because you can power through it. Right. And, you know, now we've learned that, uh, actually it's a bad idea to go to work when you're sick because you end up, uh, getting everyone else sick, but, uh, We've got to just, you know, normalize the fact that it's it's okay to ask for help or it's okay to um, take a pause. No, I, I agree. I think the AI is going to come in and make it easier, take the stress off of doctors. I, I look forward to the day that it's it's in there, not for doctors, not just for doctors, but nurses, everyone along the, the entire uh, system. Um, you know, the weird thing is that Americans now are more productive than ever. We're, we're more productive. And yet in the last 30 years, we haven't seen really an increase in like purchasing power for people, even though we're more productive, we work harder if, or as hard as we did 30 years ago. But what we produce is more than we did 30 years ago. And yet the the, the benefit or the value of our labor is not really there. Um, I want to talk to people about unions, uh, just in general. I want to learn more about them. I've never been in a union, but they sound like nice things uh, when they're done right, <laughs> just like most things. If they're done wrong, then they're evil. And, you know, there's like mob movies about that. Um, uh, so we talked a little bit about some of the things that kind of grind my gears a little bit in terms and I've heard, you know, unfair business practices, you know, homelessness, uh, your passion for uh, making a big impact. But what are some things that, you know, bother you? And what, what um, it doesn't have to be something you're actively working on, <laughs> but it would be, you know, it's a nice uh, correlative. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I will say, I mean, again, you know, it's, I mean, I think the, just the big, um, it's kind of the 800 pound gorilla or the elephant in the room, whatever. It's just, you know, that healthcare, um, healthcare is such a, challenging, complicated, convoluted, and, you know, inefficient system, right? And, you know, healthcare is the, it's you know, the, the largest, you know, largest individual chunk of the, of the GDP, right? Which is, uh, you know, sounds like a great thing. If you're, if you're doing business in healthcare, that's great. You're in the biggest, biggest chunk of the economy, you know, it's growing, but, you know, part of it, you know, it's, it's growing because everything's getting more expensive. And so you've got healthcare costs rising, you've got, uh, sometimes fewer insurance options. You've got the complexity of technologies that don't work together, you know, EHR systems that don't connect to other ones and stuff like that. Uh, you know, you've got lack of access and equity for, for everyone. And so, you know, all of that together, it's like healthcare, which is, you know, you know, one of the most fundamental, uh, you know, rights of humanity and, you know, something where, you know, we should all have access to all the healthcare we need um, you know, again, I'm not, not necessarily going to get down, uh, you know, into, you know, what, what, what sort of system should that be? Cause I think there's a lot of like choices for that, but the fact is like, everyone should have healthcare. We just need to figure out how to deliver that, but we've got such a, a challenging system. And so I love being an innovator in healthcare, 
but it's also really hard sometimes because even when you're innovating with a certain technology, how do we know that's going to get in the right people's hands at the right time? And, you know, how do we know, you know, you sort of mentioned, uh, you know, a place like LA where you've got, um, you know, you can have a Beverly Hills mansion on one corner and then, you know, go around the corner and uh, there's people living in tents. And, uh, you know, if, if but both of those people need access to healthcare, um, one of them can pay whatever whatever it takes to get whatever healthcare they need, they want, um, you know, that, you know, even uh, elective stuff. And then you've got that other person who can't pay for any of it, doesn't even know how to get to it. Um, uh, you know, in a place like Los Angeles, where, uh, you know, again, the, the the diversity of LA means we also have, um, you know, a huge uh, immigrant population in Los Angeles, right? And not all those people are, um, you know, fully legally uh, in America. And um, how do they access healthcare? And we saw that during, again, during pandemic, where, um, you know, it was it was not just an access and equity question. It was also, how do we communicate to different populations that you should go get a COVID test? You know, you should get a vaccine when they were concerned that if I do this, you know, now I'm on a list and now I'm going to um, end up deported or something like that, right? And so there's, so many layers of complexity. Uh, you know, I've been, you talk about, you were, you know, mentioning kind of, uh, you know, Midwest and, you know, you sort of think about like the, the rural versus urban divide in America. And, um, uh, and I, I actually, I've, I've, uh, you might've read the article, uh, you know, the article I wrote about, uh, you know, rural healthcare after going to that conference in, in Birmingham. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, that struck me is that, the more the more we're different, the more we're the same. And you think about kind of uh, in rural America, you know, again, your local hospital might have closed because of uh, lack of funds, lack of demand. So, you know, to go to a doctor's appointment, to get medical care, you might have to, you know, drive a couple of hours across, uh, you know, uh, bumpy dirt roads to get to, uh, you know, to get to the hospital or whatever. Um, and then you go to Los Angeles and you've got a big chunk of the population that, they're going to have to take two hours, you know, ride three buses across town to be able to get the right health care or something like that. And, uh, you know, and along the way, they had to call in sick for work, not get paid, find child care for their, their kids and things like that, all so they can get health care. And so you look at those two different populations, you know, inner city Los Angeles, rural America, but, you know, some of the challenges are the same, right? It's that, you know, how do we get access to healthcare where we are, when we want it, uh, you know, in a cost-effective way, whether that's telehealth, whether it's, uh, you know, more localized clinics, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, leveraging other kinds of tech more. And so, you know, this is just the, the, the big issue is we can innovate a lot with healthcare technology We've got to do a better job of innovating around the delivery of healthcare, the awareness around healthcare, that that access and equity question, and it's you know that goes beyond just uh, you know just do people have insurance or not. I think it sort of gets at uh, you know some of the fundamental ways that America is structured and kind of you know the the, the fact that like you know we've created this amazing country where. Theoretically, anyone can come here, anyone can do anything, and there's so many opportunities, but sometimes that diversity means that 
how do you solve, you can't solve the same problem the same way for everyone. You have to really solve it based on who they are, where they live, what language they speak, uh, you know, what, what culture and ideas they're coming with because healthcare is, is such a personal thing and it's not one size fits all. Um, so, you know, I think that that is a really, it's purposefully rambling because ultimately like healthcare is this big gnarly problem. And, you know, it might be, it might be one of the most challenging problems that we're, you know, we're all facing. And, uh, you know, even people who have great healthcare still complain about something, right. They complain about, you know, why, why did the, why does your EOB statement not make any sense? Or, you know, why do you still have to pay this copay or this deductible? And, uh, you know, those are very much first world problems, but like, it's, we've all can find something to complain about because the whole system is just so, so challenging for so many people. And, um, you know, I think I would love to be able to make a little dent in that with the work I do. And I try to surround myself with people who are healthcare innovators because you get enough of those together. And over time, you do start to make a difference and you start to, you know, you start to see it and you start to see it in, uh, um, you know, in, in, health, you know, you know, health, health span, you know, healthy lives, you'll see it in, uh, you know, quality of life, you'll see it in, uh, you know, reduction in certain diseases, which we're making strides with, but then how do we do that and make sure that's available to everyone in America? And then how do you figure out how to make it available to everyone in the world, which is, uh, you know, even more of a challenge, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like the America ends up being a micro microcosm of the planet as far as, um, some of those differences and you know challenges and getting the right healthcare to the right people, it's multiplied when you start to go to places where you know none of that exists within you know hours. Yeah. Um, so just uh, focusing in uh, for 2023, what elements of those things that we just talked about? Are you going to be addressing? And if there's like an A team that's like, oh, Mark's going to be doing this, and I'm going to be doing, you know, like, <laughs> love to hear about it too, because then you know we can uh, potentially have them on, or just like have people aware of them too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will say that you know it's so, and again, you know, focusing on the L- the LA piece of the challenge. Um, you know, this is uh, you know I I've been in my role as CEO of Bioscience LA for um, just about three years now. In fact, it'll, it's all, it'll uh, ne- next month it'll be three years. My my fun fact is Congrats. my first day. First day as CEO of Bioscience LA was Monday, March 16th, 2020. So that, which was officially the day in LA that everything shut down. So, uh, you know, my first day in this new role was the day that everything was shut down. So um, very interesting time to start trying to build community when you're not allowed to get in front of people. Yeah, just to interject real quick. What did you do then? Like, did you just like go home? Well, so first, so I guess the first of all, we didn't actually have a physical space then, so I wasn't mm. planning on going to an office that day okay. anyway. Um, but you know, I I was coming into this this new role. There were some, you know, there was a board member and a consultant who had been working on this in the previous year, and like we had basically planned on getting together, kind of, you know, eight hours a day for for a few weeks and just kind of work in a room and you know, kind of do a mind meld. And instead yeah. we, you know, did some Zooms and, you know, we sort of, you know, we had some Zooms and we're like, oh, well, we'll get together like in a week or two. And of course, uh, I think both those people, it was like well over a year before I saw either of them in, uh, you know, in person. And so, um, yeah, lots of Zooms uh, like we were all doing. And, you know, in some ways for me, it actually, 
it was kind of a blessing in disguise because, uh, um, you know, my, those early days, it was all about, okay, I need to get in front of all of the movers and shakers, people doing cool stuff in healthcare in Los Angeles. And LA is a big place. People have crazy schedules. I mean, it could have easily taken me months and months to get on people's schedules and then drive around LA to go meet with them. Instead, I could just, you know, wake up, roll out of, you know, roll out of bed, uh, get some coffee, you know, come into my office here and start doing Zooms and do that for, uh, you know, eight, 10 hours straight, no commute. Everyone's schedules were more flexible because they were all sitting at home. And so I was able to kind of meet with everyone I wanted to so quickly. So it was kind of, again, yeah. like I said, blessing in disguise for that. But uh, um, thankfully that's behind us. And, you know, we have a physical space. We've got a lot of meetings and events and convenings and it's all about bringing people together and so this year is i think will really be this inflection point where one now everyone is like fully back out there fully doing things and so how do we bring the right people together in big ways to educate them to inform them to inspire them to you know excite them even you know provoke them a little bit to kind of take action to to do more to be more innovative, to connect more, to find ways to build things here. Um, we've got some, you know, a lot of organizations in LA that want to be part of supporting this from LA County and the LA County Economic Development Corporation to trade association called Biocom. Um, and uh, there's other trade associations that I think will rally around us. You know, we've got VCs like, you know, like Brahm and, you know, uh, you know, all sorts of, you know, venture capital firms here service providers. And so for me, it's, it's how do I continue to get different combinations of those people together to start solving problems? And that problem could be how do we help this entrepreneur get funded and, you know, grow their company to how do we help a big company like an Amgen do something, you know, do something better or, you know, be more impactful and, and everything in between. And so it's, uh, it's kind of cool because it's, I will spend, you know, part of my day working with entrepreneurs who have no funding and, you know, not even incorporated and they're trying to figure out what's next to get on a strategy call with, uh, um, you know, fortune, you know, fortune 50 companies or something like that to be focusing on um, how they can have more of a meaningful impact on the industry. And so um, it's going to be more, more of that in a way where we're trying to just, get the right people together and get them to move, you know, move the needle on, on healthcare, move the needle on innovation. Um, there's, uh, you know, definitely a de huge demand right now for kind of lab space, you know, wet lab space and growth space for companies in LA. And so trying to help get the right, the public sector and the real estate developers and the investors and the companies together in ways where they realize that, we're all working on the same thing and we can we can find ways to streamline the process we can find ways to fund the process we can find ways to identify how to get things built faster so companies can get in there and do do good work and so i want to see a lot more of that this year and then uh um you know we've got our annual LA MedTech Week. It's the third third annual LA MedTech Week is coming up soon. Um, we have LA Biotech Week in the fall, and we've built these kind of weeks to be. How do we help to rally the whole community? How do we help to get people who are we're already doing an event to kind of, 
make that event happen during this week and and be part of a of something bigger than bigger than just them. And so want to see those things grow. Um, there's also uh, not life sciences specific, but um, LA Tech Week uh, happened in a big way last year. It's going to happen in a bigger way this year um, with a bun- bunch of VCs kind of backing that, uh, you know, that event series. And so we'll hopefully do some things around that. And then, uh, you know, in between the big events, it's all about having smaller events that connect people, inspire people. We helped to launch a women's health series last year called the Femtech Salon that um, uh, the entrepreneur who's running that, uh, Rachel Kim, is going to be doing more of those this year in LA and other places. And so we want to help help support that and then help identify, you know, what's the next thing we should be doing like that? Is it is it food tech? Is it synthetic biology? Is it biomanufacturing? Is it, uh, um you know, cell and gene therapy, whatever, start to build these series out where we can inspire different, you know, different parts of the community um, to, to kind of realize they have friends and allies and and people to work with. And so, um, and then, you know, we even do even smaller sorts of, not so much events, but programs where it's about helping to, uh, you know, level up the leadership leadership capabilities of first-time founders, first-time entrepreneurs. And so we're helping to build build the uh, you know the future leadership team of companies by by developing early entrepreneurs and giving them the tools they need now. Um, you know, we've got amazing internship programs to connect uh, primarily historically underrepresented populations with job opportunities in in life sciences and we'll keep growing that. And you know it's all about if you think about life science, if you think about tech, if you think about any industry, um, there's some really simple building blocks that you can use or levers to grow the industry. And it's, you know, in my mind, it's it's funding. Are we investing in companies? Are we, um, you know, whether they're getting grant dollars or venture dollars, it's space. Do they have the right uh, space to be able to do things, which for any company is important, but for life science is even more so because when you start talking about lab space and manufacturing space and things like that. You can't just do that in a WeWork or can't do it from a coffee shop or something. You've got to have real infrastructure to make it happen. And then most importantly is talent. Are we helping to recruit the right talent and grow the right talent and you know help help them get jobs when they graduate, help them stay here in LA, help them become the uh the future, the future leaders who will then repeat the process. And so um, that makes sense. I know I won't achieve all of that in 2023, but you know, a lot of that is really the the mantra about how do we think big to help uh um you know help one entrepreneur one one entrepreneur at a time make an impact, which might have an impact on one patient at a time, but you do enough of that and you're you know you're helping thousands or tens of thousands of entrepreneurs and employees who are impacting thousands, millions, billions of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, just, uh, uh, you know, three or four, I don't know how many, I'm going to give you a bunch of rapid fire questions and just, um, you know, tell me what you, what you got. Who's who's missing on your team or where, where do you need help from? Like, who's missing on your team to meet those objectives? Is, is there anyone that you don't have that you do need? That yeah, for? Um, it's, it's, it's a perfectly timed question because I, uh, I, I've been talking about this with our team and uh, and I'm talking about it with my my kind of personal CEO forum tomorrow. And so um, we have a team of five at Bioscience LA, and it's it's very lean. We have some you know consultants and 
advisors who help us, but you know, five full-time people, including me, um, everyone touches marketing in some way, which means that uh, we have no person whose title is marketing and everyone does a little bit of marketing, which means marketing generally gets done, but uh, not, not always in an integrative way and in an imp impactful way, a little bit too much, you know, overlap and rework. And so we're, we're certainly looking for someone to come on board to lead marketing. Uh, we're looking for someone to come on board to help support development and fundraising. Those are kind of the two, two big ones right now. All right. So anyone who knows anyone in LA who has those skills, uh, ping, uh, David. Yeah, I would um, love that. We're happy to talk to anyone who loves healthcare, loves innovation, and wants to make a difference. Are conferences like the JP Morgan one worth going to? I see them a lot. I see people go to them. It's like, but is it worth my time? I don't have that much time in my my day for discretionary fun and like going yeah, to conferences. So yeah, it's like, and again, it's it's sort of it's you know it's a, there's a time investment, there's a financial investment, yeah. and uh, and they add up. And uh, and I feel like there's such a pent up demand that every conference that used to happen and ones that didn't happen are all happening now. Um, I, I'm going to say that, uh, um, you know, yes, with an asterisk, uh, you know, conferences are, are useful. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the content of the conference, I think there's plenty of other ways to get that, uh, you know, like the virtual event is fine for that. Um, you know, reading, you know, maybe you can have chat GPT give you a summary of it or something like that. So there's lots of ways to get the content, but yeah. the the personal connections and kind of the serendipitous meetings, those are the things that you can't replicate. Or I, I still have not seen that uh, replicated online. And, uh, um, and so much of business is, uh, um, you know, they, people say it's like, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I'll say, I think that's true, but it's not even what it's not even who you know. It's who you who meet you. and who you connect yeah. with, and how you grow that network of uh, of who you know. And so you've got to get out there and do that. And so I think everyone should find. Uh, and there's plenty of there are plenty of ways if you can spare the time. Almost every big conference these days, even things like uh, um, you know World Economic Forum uh, and things like that. Like, which, you know, clearly you have to be someone, you know, super fancy to go to that kind of thing. But like outside of the World Economic Forum, there's all these other events happening and all the other networking things happen. And so whether it's, you know, going to Davos or going to, uh, you know, Aspen or going to, uh, you know, uh, uh, Cannes Film Festival or going to South by Southwest or whatever, even if you're not paying or even if you don't have access to the thing. There's a bunch of other things happening where people that you probably want to meet even more than the people inside the room are. And so, you know, as long as you can, you know, afford the plane ticket and some, you know, your your time, um, you can actually meet some really cool people and move things forward. Yeah. If there if there was one Keystone conference to go to for healthcare or its sub subsequent sections that you care about, what would be the ones you suggest? Yeah, so the the one the one that really excites me um, is uh, called uh, Health HLTH, which happens in uh, happens in Las Vegas. I think they've moved it around to a couple of places as well, but it's primarily Las Vegas. It's sort of it's very digital health focused, but it's got tech innovators and hospital innovators and insurance innovators, and it's just it's really well run. It's really well branded, and it's kind of like 
the right attitude, right energy. It's kind of like almost the perfect, almost the perfect conference. And so that in some ways is my, is my favorite thing to go to, um, most impactful. And, uh, um, I think that's kind of, yeah, hands down the place to be. Sweet. Um, I'll see about going and I'll let you know if I go. And if anyone else is going, we'll, we'll like, you know, we'll exactly. have like a drink or something. Um, so building relationships and networking, uh, can you talk about just like your thought process when you're meeting someone new at these conferences? Is there like something like a, a process you go through in terms of like your thoughts? Like, okay, this is a question I'm going to ask to try to get a sense of what they're looking for. Um, what am I going to say about myself? That type of thing. Cause like there's so many introverts who listen to this podcast based on some feedback I get. And so people don't really understand networking. They always feel like it's like this kind of a slimy thing. So um, if I, I'd love to get your, the sense of your approach for networking and growing up. Yeah. Like so that. I think if this works even, uh, you know, this is a, a good approach for for introverts, uh, I think, as, as well. And, um, you know, so when you get out there, you know, you're kind of walking through a room, there's there's people around, you know, you're, you're, you're overhearing conversations. And I think the key thing is to um, you know, listen to what people are saying and, uh, you know, kind of start to build some themes, build some ideas from that. And then when you're listening to a conversation, at some point, there's going to be this moment where, you know, you've got something that you can add that you know is going to help someone. And so that's a great way to kind of get yourself into a conversation to say, oh, I, hey, I know that person. I've talked to them about this or I just solved that problem. And, uh, you know, here's how I would do it for what you're doing. It's a great way to get mm-hmm. into those conversations. If you're already in a conversation with people, I, you know, I, I am a former executive recruiter. I've, uh, you know, so I've interviewed lots of people over the years and, you know, interviewing is, um, it's, it's a decent amount of asking good questions and it's a lot of just listening and synthesizing and figuring out what does it mean and where can you take the conversation from there or how can you make the connections? And so, yeah. I would say, you know, ask, you know, ask questions of people and it could just be, you know, you know, who are you? What are you working on? Uh, you know, who is that going to help? It's, you know, it can be really relatively simple, but then listen and, um, you know, don't go into conversations with here's who I am, here's what I need, or here's who I am, here's what I want to sell you. It's just like, who are you? What are you working on? You know, what are your, you know, what do you need right now? Um, and then what I try to do is, uh, I mean, typically... I know a lot of people. I know some stuff. I can't help most people directly with anything. What I can help them with is who do I know that could help them? And so, you know, I spend a lot of my time at events. It's meet someone, understand what's going on with them, and then think about, okay, who do I want to connect them with? And I do a lot of that with the idea. It's sort of a pay it forward kind of thing where I I make lots of connections, help lots of people. And what happens is all, you know, that eventually comes back to you in terms of them providing, you know, you know, funding, support, ideas, uh, you know, whatever. And so, you know, give, give more, you know, give first and then uh, uh, it comes back to you. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think sometimes people are a little bit short-sighted in the sense of like trying to pull out. I think of it like a savings account. You got to invest to get the interest and then, you know, you don't want to yeah. borrow on margin too many times. Um, yeah. What so after you've had the the setup, you know, you uh, have a relationship built. Are there are there are there qualities that you look for to build a long lasting relationship? You know, because there's 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 people that'll say good things, but then if you watch them close enough, like you can tell they're just bullshit. 
<laughs> and stuff like that. And like, yeah. to some extent, like it's not the most fun to interact with those people, uh, depending on, I guess, uh, what your vision for yourself is. Um, so how do you separate the weed from the tra- uh, chaff in terms of knowing uh, who are good people to interact with after getting the initial, like, hey, who you are, we've um, interacted a little bit professionally, and then, um, you know, establishing from that point on um, who's, I guess, like, not in a mean way, but like worth the time. Because, yeah. you know, if like, there's like an evil sociopath, like maybe you don't want to <laughs> interact with it too much. Yeah. And again, I, I, I want to say a lot of it is it's almost there's almost like self-selection that occurs on that because it's really uh, almost almost one horrible at follow up and even more horrible at follow through. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, and again, I, I'm you know, I'm I'm guilty of that, you know, far too often. But because uh, I just I meet so many people and. So, um, you know, I try to follow up with the ones I really want to want to engage with. And likewise, they follow up with me. And so you sort of find if you're both following up at a at a level that you kind of get excited about and like things start to click. Those are the ones where you're going to put more more time into. And so it becomes this like self, you know, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. I mean, if you're both if you know if you're if there's a match for whatever reason and you're both following up and you're both excited and you're both making it happen you're going to keep on making it happen even more. That's where the good stuff, you know, the good stuff happens. And and I think, you know, that's an easy way to kind of get those early, early priorities. What's also great, I, I've talked to people about this because, uh, you know, we're all, we all deal with inbox, uh, you know, overload. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I apologize to the, you know, what I know are the thousands of people maybe thousands of people listening to this podcast who emailed me and I like haven't emailed them back yet. And uh, so I will say one, just, you know, and I, we should all do this. It's like, if you email someone and you don't hear back from them, like email them again, you're not like, you're not being a hassle. You're actually maybe helping them, um, you know, as a reminder and, you know, eventually, mm-hmm. eventually the right level of, uh, of follow-up on both sides leads to something and that means you can you can revive you know revive these conversations you know if you don't follow up with someone the next week you don't follow up with them the next month it's okay I and mean, I I've, I've emailed people that I got referred to a year ago and I'll just be searching for an email and something will pop up and I'll be like oh right I got connected to this person <laughs> I will reply I'll say hey look I totally missed this last year and love what you're doing let's let's talk and you know more often than not they get back into the conversation and something good comes out of it. And I also kind of believe that um, when those things happen and they happen in a good way, it's because the timing was right for both people. And um, like, even if I had responded a year ago, things wouldn't have happened because, you know, it wasn't, wasn't quite right. So, uh, you know, be persistent and, you know, don't feel shy about or embarrassed about reviving something that feels like it's you know long gone. Yeah, just to uh, uh, emphasize a point there, when you do follow up, tr- don't be lazy about it. <laughs> like, when I get, when people ping me, uh, if it's a thoughtful re- response, it's like, okay, I'll like, like, I'll be like, okay, well, this person's being interesting. I'll, yeah. I'll engage. People that are like, you know, you up <laughs> in terms of like a response are like, well, you're going to the bottom of my inbox. There's so many other things I got to do one time. True. Um, um, so, what- and, and by the way, I, I am, I'm also, I am, I am reminded about um, when, uh, um, when we got introduced, uh, when we got introduced for me to be on the podcast and I, I think I said, I'm, I'm in the middle of traveling. It was like, it was like, you know, it was like over the holidays. I'm like, I'll, I'll get mm-hmm. back to this soon. And then you definitely followed up at the right time and said, uh, you know, 
hey, let's let's schedule something. Um, which in that case, it was like literally I was even thinking about it because I was like, I was supposed to follow up. And I'm like, what was the name of the person supposed to follow up with? What was the name of the person who referred yeah. me? And I was like, I can't remember any, I can't remember who these people were. And then you're suddenly your email pops up and I'm like, that was it. I have to. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's perfect timing. Sweet. Yeah. Um, what books would you recommend people check out? I love to read. So I'm basically going to read anything you recommend. Just as one person. So uh, I'll say, so I um, I used to do a lot of work in the uh, strategy consulting in the aerospace industry. Hmm. Um, and uh, with uh, with Boeing in particular, and we ended up using a using a book there in one of our one of our events that I hadn't read before. And I read it then I read it since then um, called the checklist manifesto. And, uh, mm. it's, you know, it's what I, what I love about that book in particular and why we were, you know, so this, this Boeing engineering group is using this book called the checklist and manifesto to figure out how they can perform better in their kind of, you know, engineering processes and things like that. Um, that was cool. You know, the book is written by, uh, uh, you know, physician entrepreneur, Atul Gawande, uh, who, designed this whole system or like, you know, wrote this book based on checklists that they were using um, in, you know, in the hospital, uh, um, you know, in, uh, in Boston. But then the origins of the checklist strategy had come from pilot checklists that had been developed by Boeing in part, you know, like, a hundred years before or something. So here I am working with Boeing engineers who love reading this book about checklists written by a doctor, partially inspired by Boeing engineers, you know, kind of a uh, hundred years before or something like that. Um, but I think that book is just, it's so powerful, whether you're, whether you're in business, whether you're, uh, you know, just trying to manage your life better, you know, it's great for adults, it's great for kids because it really helps you understand how to get things done. Um, so that book, I, you know, that book I always turn to, you know, one of my other favorites because all of us, whether we're in corporate world, volunteer stuff, you know, school, you know, religious organizations, volunteer groups, whatever. Um, there's a book called the, the five dysfunctions of a team, which is, uh, you know, really helps you to understand kind of what makes teams not work and therefore helps you understand what makes teams work. And it's, uh, it's written in kind of a fable format. So it's like a really fun. fun, light read. Um, so those are two kind of just, you know, favorite books that I, uh, that I always go back to. Sweet. And then, um, last question, uh, there's Beatles behind you. What is a Beatles song or album you, you'd love for people to listen to while reading these books? I thought you were just going to ask me like, you know, you know, Beatles or Stones, right? And I was gonna be like, okay, come on. It's, it's obviously it's Beatles. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to answer that question with, uh, I'm not going to answer it directly because I, I really mm. can't like, uh, um, I, I just, I've never been able to figure out like, like true, like favorites with the Beatles, but something I've been yeah. doing uh, recently. So um, I've been a Beatles fan, like, you know, pretty much my entire life. And then, you know, at some point I, you know, at some point I got into, you know, John Lennon solo stuff as well. And I, you know, that was probably like in my, I don't know, probably like my, my twenties and thirties or whatever. And then, uh, you know, eventually like I, you know, kind of explored George Harrison a little bit, oddly enough, you know, aside from the hit songs, I've never um, really dug into 
Paul McCartney. And I was I was just like literally earlier this week. I'm like, you know what? I should listen to like Paul McCartney's first album. I'll listen to his like second album. And um, what I started to do with that, and now I'm going to go back and do it with with John and George, is thinking about like, and you can do this with any band, take, uh, you know, a band breaks up, you know, people are doing different stuff. Listen to those, you know, that first or, you know, first and second albums of the the, the person as a solo artist and think about, which of those songs could have been a Beatles song, right? So it's like, you know, because mm. a song on That's Paul McCartney's first album, like some of those songs he already probably had, right? They were like, they were in his head or they were even written down. They just didn't, you know, they didn't make it onto the album and then he's doing it on his own thing. And you can start to figure out like how do people's styles evolve and things like that. And, uh, you know, even the Beatles, I mean, you know, like in the grand scheme of things, the Beatles were a fairly you know, short-lived band as an, you know, as an active band, right? Especially compared to, say, the Rolling Stones or whatever, which is, you know, still a band, uh, you know, for whatever. That's probably, like, 15 times the duration of uh, uh, of the Beatles or something like that at this point. But you even within the short time of the Beatles, you know, their, their styles evolve, and you watch them individually evolve. So uh, um, that's my, uh, that's my long-winded answer to say I can't pick a favorite song, but... Uh, um, I'm happy to have any Beatles on in the background as I'm working on stuff. Okay. What's the, um, the one on your back, right? Is that an album? It doesn't have to be favorite. I'm just going to like, yes, that, yeah, so is that an album? Actually, so this is, uh, so yeah, that one there is like all the Beatles album covers with all the songs. This is, this is a, uh, theoretically it's an actual, it's an actual concert, uh, poster print from what was the. So this is the Beatles' very last concert because the Beatles kind of famously, kind of famously stopped touring, like relatively early as as a band, right? So they kind of came to America in '64. I think this is like, I think this is '66. So basically, you know, they like toured nonstop for like two years, and then, but it was at Candlestick Park in uh, you know in San Francisco, and I lived in San Francisco for years, so I love the fact that like the you know, the final Beatles concert. Uh, and this is one of these, you know, they, they, they were, they were so popular. And the thing that drove them crazy is like, they would, they would go to perform in a concert and they were like, the crowd is screaming so loudly the entire time. Nobody can even hear the music. They're like, we could just be up here, like pretending to like play and sing and nobody would know the difference because hmm. nobody can hear us. And so like that was in, you know, Candlestick Park, like that was like definitely like that. And so, uh, um, yeah, I love having this like last last Beatles concert poster. <laughs> 